0: For your support, it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, March third, twenty seventeen. Now I'm going to invoke a rare thing here, and that is a a second light episode of the week. It's kind of important, and I'm a little under the weather. to compare what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula apparently we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. And we find out that what is being passed off as... Well, what God's Word says isn't what God's Word says. It's false doctrine. It's Bible-twisting. It's narcissistic nonsense and things like that. Now, part of the way in which we help instruct you to be discerning is by exposing you to good lectures and good teachings, uh, good Bible classes and things like that, so that you can kind of see how the two kind of compare side by side. Now, what we're going to do with today's episode, again, it's very rare that I invoke a second light episode. It happens from time to time. Like I said, I'm a little bit under the weather, fighting a cold, a flu, and, um, and so, you know, actually I'm not in the clearest mental state, especially since I'm on DayQuil. But I have found a really good lecture by Pastor Brian Katchelmeyer, and the way I want to set it up is this, is that, uh, you know, when you say the word Lutheran, yeah, the first thing that often comes to mind is not confessional Lutherans, uh, those who believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God, who preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, that's generally not the first thing that comes to your mind. The first thing that comes to your mind is liberal mainline denomination that ordains women and homosexuals. But they're not really Lutheran. Um, And and in fact, far from it. They're apostate. And um, the question that comes up oftentimes is, what is the difference between real confessional Lutheranism and the ELCA brand of Lutheranism. And uh, aside from an in-depth study on their view of the Word of God, which is really where they jump the tracks, there's also an alternative gospel put forward by the ELCA that sounds grace-ish, that sounds like law and gospel but isn't. And um, and as a result of it, uh, the ELCA false understanding of grace, which is really a form of antinomianism, and that's really what it is. I mean, how do you end up with somebody like Nadia Bulls-Weber as like a darling of the ELCA? Answer, well, they actually te- – it, it, it. it's a form of antinomianism. And in this lecture that we're going to hear from, uh, from uh, Pastor Katchelmeyer, he's going to make – a really good case for understanding how the distinctives work, and he's going to compare a right understanding of grace alone to the false understanding of the ELC of grace only. Big difference between the two concepts, and in fact, I found this lecture to be very instructive in this way when it comes to, you know, how do you Describe and how do you do the comparing and contrasting so that you can you can listen with um yes you to know, say discernment because if you ever come across somebody who's influenced by this elCA concept of of uh, grace only. Yeah, that's not really the gospel. That's that's a form of antinomianism and a very, very insipid one at that. So uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to listen to this lecture recently delivered by uh, Pastor Katchelmeyer at a conference put on by Steadfast uh, Lutherans. So let's get to it. Here's Pastor Katchelmeyer.
1: Sin boldly.
2: Justifying faith.
1: Or fragile and broken soul. Now, this is actually the name of a book by Ted Peters. Ted Peters is a professor out of Pacific Lutheran uh, Seminary out with the ELCA. A book that he's put out. And I think this book is important
2: for us to understand. Ted Peters comes up with a concept
1: of a moral universe. Now, that moral universe, of course, is that which grounds our moral sense of reality, of truth, and puts meaning into what we are. Principles of rightness and fairness. Now, in order to describe a moral universe, what Ted Peters does is he takes the image of a mixing bowl. So follow me. You have a, a beater, a mixer. And you have some kind of substance, something that's swirling around in this vortex of unendingness, if you will. And it's spinning and spinning and spinning, and in the center is absolutely nothing. He says that center is your soul, the ball is the moral universe that's keeping everything together. The problem, Ted says, is that in this world, these constructed moral universes that we put together fall apart. They start to crack. They start to crumble, and it's going to break. And in order to prevent this moral universe from breaking, you use what he calls spiritual duct tape. What he means by spiritual duct tape is self-justification. For Ted Peters, the real problem that we are facing is self-justification. The real problem is not sin. It's self-justification. It's the spiritual duct tape. Now He says that in this self-justification, this spiritual duct tape, this self-condemning oneself, it ends up in guilt the conscience, of course, can then be crushed by what he calls a fragile soul. Now, he claims that we, by nature, all have this desire to do the right thing, that we all want justice, that we want to love. But human beings are fundamentally orientated toward these good things. So that's why we want this moral universe to be in place. You, a uh, spiritual uh, Duct tape all the time, the self-justification in our own lives. He uses the example that, you know, in your own life, you have a sense of what is fair. So when something happens that you perceive as not fair, you make it known. That's not fair. Or on the other end, you have a a sense of this self-justification in which you want to always justify yourself saying, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It was the other guy. Now, when Ted Peters talks about spiritual duct tape, that way that we're trying to keep this moral universe together in place so it doesn't fracture and break, he gives us the clearest example, which is legalism. We know this. Perfectionism, moralism, this external shell of rules that we try to put in place in order to make sure that justice happens. Because this, of course, is what Ted Peters says we want. We all want justice by nature. But on the flip side, another example of spiritual duct tape that Ted Peters will use is not legalism, but orthodoxy. Remember, this guy's ELCA. So that orthodoxy is a pursuit of pure doctrine. Whenever you're trying to pursue the pure doctrine, you're putting on spiritual duct tape on this bowl so it doesn't crack and break. You're trying to seek security in getting the doctrine right. Remember, ELC. What Ted Peters is identifying is that the soul is trying to form itself according to this moral universe, according to this system of spiritual duct tape and self-justification. Now, I want you to understand this bigger picture of what Ted is getting at. Now, as soon as he he tells us about a moral universe and it breaks, then he explains that then we have the problem. You're moving from what he calls a fragile soul to a broken soul. Now, the fragile soul is the one that's self-forming. It's the one that is constantly using spiritual duct tape. But then it produces all this anxiety. But that fragile soul is trying to seek justice and it wants to make everything right. It wants the bowl to stay intact. But then, when the fragile soul is unable, unable to perform the justice that it has put into place, what does the fragile soul do? itself justifies it lies to itself and claims that actually it did do the right thing (laughs) did it anyway wasn't my fault on the other hand though when that ball breaks and that moral universe is no more then what ted peters identifies is a person has become a broken soul And this usually happens when there's some kind of a traumatic event in life. The fence has now been destroyed. The soul has been destroyed. You're no longer able to lie to yourself about your failure, about how you did not do what you had required yourself to do. And so what you finally do is you deny the major premise that it was ever a requirement to begin with. And now what Ted Peters is trying to teach us is that the soul is that empty vortex in the middle of the bowl. Once the bowl is broken, you've got nothing. And so for Ted Peters, the only solution is Christ in the middle of the vortex that is empty, that makes everything right. and That becomes what he calls a robust soul. In other words, uh, something that we would be familiar with, it's this Christ dwelling in us. Not the forensic Christ for us, but the living Christ in us. I'll get more to that in just a minute. When Ted Peters is writing this book, Send Boldly, that this is justification for the fragile and the broken soul, he is teaching us that he's trying, attempting to reach the spiritual but not religious people. And what he means by that, these are the people who left the American evangelical movement. These are the ones who have been terrorized by the law. These are the ones who, they don't want to have anything to do with church anymore because their moral universe is now broken. So they want to find liberation from any concepts of sin and judgment against sin and any kind of feeling of Guilt. So Ted Peters is trying to reach that crowd, the former American evangelicals. On the other end of the spectrum, he's also trying to reach the crowd of the atheists who see religion as a disease that is caused by this anxiety. We're constantly trying to put spiritual duct tape on things, and it's just making us a mess. And so for the atheist, of course, the answer is science. What Ted Peters is trying to propose is justification is the answer. But it's his form of justification, ELCA. In his form of justification, the fragile soul becomes a broken soul, and the only solution is a robust soul. That's the indwelling of Christ in the individual believer. So the, he says, when he's speaking about justification of faith, what he means is that it's the faith that God has placed in us, not our faith in God. It's God's faith placed in us by the Holy Spirit when Jesus, the just person, is inside of us and his justice makes us justified. And then once a person realizes that God does the justification, no longer do you need self-justification. Now the soul can be formed and transformed by the indwelling Jesus. Of course, when Ted Peters is doing this, he is also referring to Jesus not as the atoning sacrifice, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but instead Jesus is the scapegoat. And that's important to understand. For Ted Peters, when he views grace, grace is this idea, this idea. Understanding that God is gracious. And there's nothing that I need to do to gain it. And there's nothing that I can do to lose it. Nothing. So notice what Ted Peters is trying to do is he's trying to get rid of self-justification. That's his process.
2: ELCA. Now, another,
1: other, individual, like Ted Peters, the ELCA, of course, is Gerhard Ferdy. Gerhard Ferdi writes a book called Justification, a matter of death and life. ELCA again. Gerhard Ferdi is the one who says that we need to become radicalized, radical Lutherans. We need radical Lutheranism, which is the true Lutheran identity. Lutherans need to be radical preachers with a radical gospel, with a radical grace, with radical forgiveness. And when he wrote this book, it was based upon lectures he had given back at the 450th anniversary of the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. He's trying to teach the people in the ELCA that we need to have our radical roots Of justification and his power, the explosive power once again given in the radical gospel, radical grace. So that here Ferdy refers to this question that everybody's going to ask What must I do to be saved? And the answer, of course, Ferdy says, Nothing. And that's radical. That's it. Nothing. So Ferdy will talk about the The understanding of justification in a forensic way, what he calls a legal way, that it is as if God is telling you to make a movement from sin to righteousness, but then right at the very last minute, God changes the whole system and says, nope, you're not justified by works, you're justified by faith. It's completely nothingness that you're supposed to do
2: that this is the unconditional
1: language of the gospel. But Ferdy says this unconditional language is what is getting us into trouble because we live in a society that is used to conditional language, self-justification. So as soon as you talk about justification, you want to go back into this legal system of what do I need to do? And so Ferdy says that there are two metaphors for justification. First, there is the morality metaphor. And second, there is the mortality metaphor. What Ferdy means by the morality metaphor is legal language, that it is a matter of life and death. You can only do good when you're living, of course, and then when you die, it's too late judged. That's the legal metaphor. But the morality metaphor is no good. What we need is the mortality metaphor. This is death and life. This is law gospel dynamics. Law kills and grace gives life. Not in the legal way. So this is what Ferdy is trying to emphasize here. He says the problem we have in society is everybody's used to conditional language and the problem is the legal language. So that you see back in the time of the Reformation and even in our own day, people are constantly going back to legal language, Birdie will note. That people think that justification is a process. It is a movement, a skill, a ladder from sin to righteousness. This is the problem. And he notes that what Luther does is he replaces this entire dynamic with something different. The mortality metaphor from
2: death to life. So both Ferdy and
1: Peters really have no use for a third law. Not at all. Really, what this is all about is the problem being self-justification, and we just have to repackage this in a radical way, a radical justification. It will present this with power, explosive power. So for Ferdy, he's trying to get rid of this self-justification, and he wants to talk about the unconditional announcement, the pronouncements, the degree it is finished. Now, One thing to note with Ferdy is there's no use of the high priest the mediator between man and God, and also with Ted Peters. There's no use of the mediator between man and God.
2: Now, with this in mind, we look at the facts here. The problem is not
1: self-justification. The problem is sin. The problem is not getting rid of the legal language. If we just get rid of this morality metaphor, everything will be right. The problem is sin. We need a different righteousness. Not a righteousness that is based upon the works of the law. No man can be justified by the law. The law cannot justify. But the legal language of the law is not the problem. We need a different righteousness. We don't need a different metaphor. We need God's righteousness. A righteousness that is ours by faith. And what this does is it shows us kind of different people in the Lutheran realm of things trying to present a bigger and better way for justification. Instead of going back to the simple text of scripture and saying, how does God present justification? The properly understood, the issue at hand here is a Hebrew meaning of the word justification. That's what we need to learn. It's not that legal language is bad. It's that we don't understand the Hebrew meaning, the Hebrew thinking and speaking of justification.
2: So, Of course, where do we go to the Old Testament? In the Hebrew meaning To justify means to absolve from guilt, pardon, to acquit. Thus, to be declared righteous is to be
1: pronounced innocent. We get this uh, most clearly in, for instance, Psalm 143, where David says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one living is justified, declared innocent before you. Because of sin, we are all condemned by the law. Now, what Peters is trying to do and what Ferdy is trying to do is trying to make justification more radical. Something that will work, especially to the American Christians. And so they're trying to get rid of self-justification that's seen in American Christianity. But With Luther in the Reformation, there's something different going on. There. Now, Ferdy wants to go back to Luther and he wants to talk about the radicalness of the Lutheran church. But understand with me that when we go back in history, Luther made some very strong, polemical exaggerations with shock and awe. Stuff that people like Furry love. People in the ELCA love these things. I mean, Luther at one time, he said, of course, sin boldly. At another time, Luther said, works cannot be taught without harming faith. Or Melanchthon one time said, all works of man are entirely sinful and worthy of death. Or, Bugenhagen said one time, there will never be a unity between works and faith. I understand, these were radical statements. And the Roman Catholics loved these radical statements because they could gather them together as a list and say, see, these are what the Lutherans are teaching. They're anti-law. And the radical students of Luther, of course, loved to take these exaggerated, shock and awe statements. And run with them. Now, in fact, even the term radical Lutheranism is really seen in what is called the Radical Reformation. That's the Anabaptists. I mean, understand, we had a radical reformation. These were the Anabaptists. These are the ones who took that phrase of Luther that salvation is by faith alone. And they said, Yeah, faith alone. That means no works, no baptism. No Lord's Supper, no absolution, no office of the holy ministry. It is faith alone apart from all these other things. Or even some of the other radical students of Luther who would take these statements and run with them. Like Agricola. When he would say that we don't need the law in the church. It has no place in the church. He wanted to remove the law from the church. And the best way to silence that law that always accuses is ban it from the church. Get it out. It's not for the believers. Or you could even go as far as Amstor, who just comes to the point and it's just flat out says, good works are actually detrimental to salvation. These guys had no use for a third use
2: law. These were radical students of Luther.
1: Now, in our day, this call to radical Lutheranism is trying to go back to these radical statements of Luther. Listening to the call of Ferdy and saying, we'll pick up this radical gospel, this radical grace with radical blog posts, with radical podcasts, with radical conferences. All these shock and awe statements of Luther. God doesn't need your good works. Semmel. Sola.
2: Sin boldly. Let's just cut that down. to Sin.
1: And of course, the law always accuses. Now what's interesting is like Ted Peters, they are trying to reach the former American evangelicals. The spiritual but not religious. These are people who have been terrorized by the law. They don't want to hear about sin and judgment. They don't want to feel guilty. They don't need the law because the law only uses. And so in this radical Lutheranism in our day, you're trying to radically preach the gospel. We want it to be really, really the gospel. Now understand the setting of American Christianity. It's the Baptists who talk to their people about really, really being saved. And how do you know if you're really, really saved? Well, did you really, really mean it when you asked Jesus into your heart? Or even the Pietists, okay, how do you know if you're saved? Well, it's simple. If you're really, really sorry for your sins, then you know you're saved. What we see in this this radical Lutheranism right now, you know that you're really, really saved if you really, really sin. That's how you know how radical God's grace is. It's really, really graceful. So that in this context, the only sin becomes self-justification. Now, This is funny because it sounds a whole lot like Ted Peters, that that's the problem, self-justification. So if you want to talk about the purity of doctrine, immediately that's labeled self-justification. If you want to talk about progress and sanctification, Knee-jerk reaction? Self-justification. If you want to talk about learning to walk in the law of God, self-justification. Because, see, self-justification's the problem. That's how they see it. Because, after all, they are quoting and spouting out that the law only accuses. Now, I'm purposely making a distinction between the law always accusing and the law only. See, salvation is by grace alone, but what happens in this shift with this radical form of the gospel, the radical grace, it's now all I want to hear is only grace. Just give me a preacher who preaches grace only. That's the only thing I want to hear. And of course, there is no place for the third use of the law. Why? Well, that's legal language. And as Ferdy says, That is the problem, the metaphor of morality. What they're trying to do is get rid of self-justification.
0: All right, we're going to pause the lecture right there. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture on rightly understanding justification and grace by Pastor Katchelmeyer. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
1: Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking
3: your false doctrine now. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: Max Holidays Bird Cage Theater presents Church Day Select Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway.
0: Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this
3: trail. It's just a simple three hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out.
0: It looks like a journal of some sort.
3: It's really beat up.
0: Should we read it?
3: Well, we've got nothing better
0: to do. Sounds good to me.
4: Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day 2. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day 3. I think i figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle. Because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely.
3: Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until...
4: Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out and... Still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization. But I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar day 14 today my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds i just barely escaped but i'm gonna have to start foraging for my own food i can only hope that i find my way back day 34 today i came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42 I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus, the Emmaus walk, walk is a trap.
3: It's- if your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just
0: said it and then died.
3: Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the Megapasters doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. (laughs) Maybe the world would be better off if they did.
0: for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
2: Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a
3: heretic! <laughs> <laughs> What if um the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box! <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate.
0: Good uh, morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could make you think that those who don't preach the law properly are not rightly preaching the gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. Well, an amount that you pick. That's right. Your rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at nine dollars ninety five cents a month. After that, Gunners made at twenty four ninety five a month. From there master gunner at forty nine ninety five a month and then quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month if you 're growing as a result of your listening to fighting for the faith, rightly understanding god 's word, learning how to well not be deceived and not fall under the teaching of those who twist god 's word and manipulate you, well, then really consider more than consider, actually support fighting for the F- faith so that we can keep doing what we 're doing and plan our next uh, offerings that uh, we 're putting together to uh, help the body of Christ to learn the truth. And uh, so, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of the lecture from Pastor Katchelmeyer making that distinction between, you know, the false gospel of grace only, that you can find in ELCA Lutheran types and those influenced by them, and grace alone, which is a different thing altogether, which requires faith, too. But uh, here again is uh, Pastor Katchelmeier.
1: Now understand with this preaching of grace only, I only want to hear about grace, don't tell me the law, because the law only accuses me. You end up teaching people to pray in
2: this manner. Oh, God, you don't need to teach me. I'll just do it naturally. It'll just flow from my heart. Now, that's in direct contrast to Psalm 143,
1: which again is where we talked about David saying, enter not into my judgment. Your servant, O Lord. Why? Because no one living is righteous before you, is justified in your sight. No one is innocent before you in your sight, O Lord. And this is the same psalm where David began by saying, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. And in your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness answer me. And then, of course, later on in the psalm, he gets to the point where he says, I have fled for refuge in you. Teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me on a level ground. When we're talking about this radicalized Lutheranism that's becoming more and more cool, we begin to see justification as a one-time past event. It's something that took place a long, long time ago. You were justified. And the emphasis is on the sacrificial death of Jesus, the lamb who has been slain. It's as if this divine tribunal has already happened. It's all in the past. Everything's been settled. It is a form of once justified, always justified. This utter confusion of what justification truly is. What is the real meaning of justification? It is to be pardoned from your guilt. It is to be forgiven. It is to be declared innocent in God's sight. This teaching ends up that justification is by grace alone without faith. And what's striking is this emphasis on Jesus the Lamb, which is good, But then there's no follow up with Jesus, the high priest, the one mediator between man and God. You see, you can't get away from a need to be declared justified, innocent, forgiven again and again and again. Why? Because in this life you sin again and again and again. You are constantly in the need of a mediator. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus' righteous Father. So what I would like to do to help bring some form of clarification is kind of present a working redefinition of some words. So first, when we talk about self-justification, let's replace that word with self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the confidence in one's own achieved righteousness through moralism, legalism, or any other works of the divine law. And then rationalizing that on account of them, you have now made yourself acceptable before God in the divine tribunal. That's self-righteousness. Now, on the other hand, self Justification is something a little bit different. Self-justification is excusing one's own sinful actions in thought, word, and deed. By rationalizing that, well, it's acceptable in God's sight because God is gracious and we all sin after all. You see, self-justification is really self-pardoning. So that wherever the law accuses the sinner, well, now in this self-justification, you apply the gospel to excuse the sin. Sin is justified instead of the sinner being justified. You get this? There's a small little difference here, but it makes all the difference in the world. And when we talk about the grace of self justification, that's the direction we're moving here. The grace of self justification, this self excusing, this self pardoning, is the understanding that God's grace is unconditional love. It cannot be earned and it cannot be lost. The grace of self justification announces that all is good. All is well, even your most wicked works are good. In fact, there is no such thing as wicked works. The grace of self-justification is focusing on this unconditional love of God. God is gracious, God is love. The grace of self-justification is not the grace of Justification. And therefore, I want to make this distinction by talking about the true grace alone in justification through faith alone is what I'm terming as grace alone. On the contrast, this grace that is formed by self-justifying, self-pardoning, self-excusing is grace only. That's all you want to hear is about the unconditional love of God. Now, let me give you an example. In Titus chapter 2, one who is preaching grace only would take Titus chapter 2 and say this, right from the text. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So
2: far the text, amen. That's grace
1: only. But grace alone, the true understanding of grace alone, through faith alone, continues to receive the entire text of God's word as a gift. Paul goes on to say, after putting a period right there, or a comma technically, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control. Upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works.
2: That's the true preaching of grace alone. It's the whole counsel of God. That's Titus chapter 2.
1: Here's another example that I'll give you. The preaching of grace only teaches this truth. We cannot keep the law. Period. Exclamation point. Period. Exclamation point. On the other hand, though, the preaching of grace alone teaches that without Christ and without the Holy Spirit, we cannot keep the law. However, Christ has perfectly kept the law for us. He is our righteousness, being our mediator, our high priest. He has won for us the remission of our sins and also the renewal of the Holy Spirit. By faith, we are justified and regenerated. We receive the Holy Spirit, and we begin to keep the law ever more and more. That's the preaching of grace alone. It's a fuller understanding of the salvation that we have in the person and work of Christ
2: this grace-only
1: preaching. They kind of just, they start off and then they stop. They don't go far enough to explain the reality. They give you what you want to hear. You gather grace-only preachers, just only preach us grace. That's all we want to hear. Don't tell me about my sins. Don't tell me about the law. It's only going to make me feel guilty. Grace-only preaching Wants to say, justification by grace. Not even mention faith sometimes. Or grace-only preaching will announce God's unconditional love because of Christ, that Christ is a gift. Never go further and say, he's also an example like Luther told us. Grace-only preaching wants to draw all attention to the sacrifice of Christ, but no attention to the mediation of Christ now as our high priest. Grace only preaching wants to point you to the Savior and then dismiss sins. Whereas grace only preaching wants to rebuke sins and then point you to the Savior. Grace only preaching is all about freedom from the judgment of the law. No emphasis about the law enslaving. I just want to be free from its judgment. I don't want to feel guilty. In fact, grace-only preaching draws all attention that we're just all sinners anyway. That's just who we are. And because of our sinful nature, it is impossible to do good works. That's it. Grace-only preaching condemns pietism. talks about how horrible it is to be a pietist. It never encourages piety. And, of course, grace-only preaching is always talking about the law, accusing the law, condemning, and that's all and only all that it ever does. So that it causes an improper separation between law and gospel. Now, that's drastically different from a proper distinction of law and gospel. Separating is pulling it apart. So that in grace-only preaching, they say, Hey, everybody, don't worry, sin remains in the baptized. Whereas grace alone preaching would say, yeah, it remains in the baptized, but it should not reign in the baptized. Because if it reigns in the baptized and you have ruling sin, you don't have faith. Faith is gone. Grace only preaching broadcasts the sinful work of man that necessitates salvation. It instructs the sinner by saying, hey, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, and you're saying you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. End of story. And so
2: just live by grace. Now see, what happens
1: in the end, that grace alone preaching leads to the proper doctrine of justification. Grace alone preaching leads to the justification of the sinner. Whereas grace only preaching leads merely to the justification of sin. And when we're looking at this radical Lutheranism that's becoming more and more popular lately, especially on the Internet, we want to be clear about this language of the law always accusing. Because that's one of the things they love to promote. This bumper sticker theology, we can put it on mugs and t-shirts and hats that the law only accuses. That's all it does. But we need to understand properly how we as Lutherans believe, teach, and confess that the law always accuses. What does this mean that the law always accuses? Well, you've got to go to the Apology where Melanchthon is talking about this language of the law always accusing. What is he doing in the Apology? He is actually trying to explain justification by grace alone through faith alone in contrast to Rome. And so what Melanchthon is doing in the apology when he says the law always accuses, Melanchthon says, okay, Rome, if you want to do it your way, that that's your way you want to be justified before God, that's a way that is without Christ, it is without the Holy Spirit, it is without faith in the mediator. And then Melanchthon says, and by the way, just remember, if that's what you want, the law always accuses. Because the law cannot justify, the law cannot pardon, it cannot declare innocent. In fact, if you look at Luther's commentaries on Galatians, when Luther is talking about justification very clearly and saying this is the article that needs to be taught and relearned and re-understood again and again so that we never lose it. Luther will make this statement in his Galatian commentary. Now listen to what Luther says, referring to Christ. He says, Christ himself is Lord of the law. Therefore, the law has no jurisdiction over him. And the law cannot accuse Christ because he's the son of God. He who was not under the law subjected himself voluntarily to the law. The law did everything to him that it did to us. It accused us and terrified us. Yet Luther goes on to say, it accused him of blasphemy and sedition. It found him guilty in the sight of God, of all the sins of the entire world. Luther's point is the law cannot accuse Jesus. And then Luther goes on to apply this for us. For those who have faith in Christ. Luther says for those who are justified through faith alone in the person and work of Christ. Luther says. For just as the wrath of God cannot terrify us. Since Christ has freed us. Set us free from it. That is the law. Then the law and sin cannot accuse us or condemn us. You See again. With justification in the Hebrew manner of speaking. To justify is to pardon of guilt. It is to declare innocent. If God has declared you innocent. The law cannot accuse you and declare you guilty. So this is the importance that Luther is trying to teach us. And he goes on even further and he says this about the work of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, because... They, that would be the believers, walk by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit. They are not under the law. That is, the law cannot accuse and terrify them. And even if it tries, it cannot bring them to the point of despair. Despair. So notice what Luther is saying is that we are no longer under the law, which means we are no longer under the accusations and condemnation of the law. Those who are in Christ are a new creation, and there is no condemnation. The law cannot accuse us. And so Luther will go on to say, uh, talking about justifying faith, saying, but those, on the other hand, don't have justifying faith, those who perform the works of the flesh and gratify the desires of the flesh, those ones are accused and condemned by the law, both politically and theologically. See, it does accuse and condemn those who live by the flesh without faith, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit. And then, in fact, Luther gets to the point in his Galatians commentary where he says, with the work of Christ, who is our mediator, who has won for us the remission of sins and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, we have actually been changed from enemies of the law to friends of the law. Again, what Luther's trying to emphasize here is not this concept of the law always accusing, But this joy that in Christ, the law cannot accuse because it cannot accuse him. And he's the one who continues to stand as our mediator, the one who continues to forgive us as we continue to sin. Now, in another place, Luther is dealing in particular with the antinomians. These are the gospel-only preachers who Luther will say are doing a great job. Job of preaching Christ, but then they stop. So, in his work on the councils in the church, Luther says this their preaching, that's the grace only preachers, he says their preaching is beautiful. And I cannot but think with real sincerity that they're preaching about Christ's grace and about the forgiveness of sin and whatever else can be said about the doctrine of redemption. But they flee as if it were the very devil. The consequence is that they should tell the people about the third article of sanctification. That is of the new life in Christ. They, these gospel-only preachers, they think one should not frighten or trouble the people, rather always preach comfortingly about grace and the forgiveness of sins in Christ, and under no circumstances use such words as, listen here, you want to be a Christian and at the same time remain an adulterer, a whoremonger, a drunken swine, arrogant, covetous, and a user, envious, vindictive, malicious, etc. These preachers can't do that. Instead, what they say over and over again is, hey, listen, though you are an adulterer, a whoremonger, a miser, or any other kind of sin that's ruling and reigning over you, hey, if you believe, you're saved. Sounds a lot like once saved, always saved. Where in our context, once justified, always justified. At another point in this writing, Luther will say this about these grace-only preachers. He'll say again, they're doing a great job of preaching the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but they stop there. So Luther says this it is indeed taking away Christ and bringing him to naught at the same
2: time. He is most beautifully
1: proclaiming Christ. While he is saying yes, he is saying no to the same thing. For there is no such Christ that died for sinners who did not, after the forgiveness of sins, Desist from sins and lead a new life. Thus, they preach Christ nicely with Nestorian and Eutychian logic that Christ is and is yet not Christ. They may be fine Easter preachers, but they are very poor Pentecost preachers. They do not preach about the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, but only about the redemption of Jesus Christ. Although Christ, whom they extol so highly and rightly so, is Christ. That is, he has purchased redemption from sin and death, so that the Holy Spirit might transform us out of the old Adam into the new man. We die unto sin and we live unto righteousness, beginning and growing here on earth, and perfecting it beyond, as St. Paul teaches. Luther goes on to say, Christ, not only did Christ die for us, So not only did Christ earn for us grace, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that we might have not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the cessation of sin. Now, he who does not abstain from sin, but persist in his evil life. Luther concludes, must have a different Christ. That of the antinomians. the real Christ is not there. Luther's very pointed in these texts. And another statement right here that I think Luther really just brings it home. He says, our antinomians, these grace-only preachers, they fail to see that they are preaching Christ without and against the Holy Spirit. Because they propose to let the people continue in their old ways and still pronounce them saved. And yet, logic, too, implies that a Christian should either have the Holy Spirit in a new life or know that he has no Christ. This is the real Luther. This is not bumper sticker theology. This is not taking these little quotes of Luther, these little sound bites that are very radical, shock and awe value, but taking Lutheranism. Now, what I propose is when we are addressing such concerns in the Lutheran church, well, there's nothing new. The Lutheran church has always been confronting these concerns ever since the day of Luther and his radical students that Luther himself had to confront. And then most clearly, Kimnitz had to confront. I mean, later on, when Kimnitz himself, uh, Kimnitz uh, puts into this, uh, this, this whole church order, Kimnitz he goes and he puts in this church order and he talks about justification and he gives it in a very precise way. This is how a preacher in the territory should preach justification. And when he does this, he comes to the point of saying, now, if a preacher keeps preaching this doctrine of this article from all error and preserves it from falsification on every side, in order to do this, he must also pay close attention So that Epicureanism does not have a damaging effect on the other side through the misuse of this doctrine. For many would view this article as though, through it, the law is entirely and completely abolished. That God will now no longer care about sin or even be angry with an ungodly person. But now, only grace preaching remains whether one converts from sin. Or remains in it. You see, the problem is not moralism, legalism, the language of the law, the metaphor of morality. The problem is sin. And in order to confront sin properly, we need to understand exactly what God's remedy is in the Hebrew mind and way of thinking, and to justify is to acquit, is to pardon from sin, is to declare innocent. And only Christ can do this. It's only Christ, the person, and the work of Christ that can justify us. Only his righteousness can be received before God. So that we understand in that Hebrew way of thinking, it is a judicial term. This is about the divine tribunal that to justify is to absolve from sin. The law definitely accuses all humanity as being under sin, and to be under sin, what Kimnitz says, is to be without Christ the mediator, to be without the Holy Spirit, and of course to be without faith in Christ. Now, understand that the law cannot absolve the guilty. It cannot justify, it cannot declare us innocent. That's not what the law does. It can't do it, and it can't do it because of sin. The law pronounces guilty and cursed. So when Melanchthon talks about this justification in the Augsburg Confession and in the Apology. It is later on where Chemnitz has to really clarify with these radical students of Luther. And, of course, the, the formula of Concord. And in his continuous teaching. His examination of the Council of Trent and what they are saying that we say, which we don't. What the Council of Trent is condemning and what we, of course, are confessing. But what is most beneficial for us is to go back to the root Not of these radical statements of Luther, not of the bumper sticker theology, but instead to go back to Chemnitz, who had to instruct these radical students of Luther. And so there's just two things that I I want you to keep in mind here, two things. Uh, First of all, understand that when Chemnitz is talking about Christ, he's talking about not only the Lamb of God, but the high priest, the medium. And as the high priest, Christ has earned for us two things. The benefits and blessings of Christ the mediator are reconciliation and renewal. Of course, those who do not have faith are not partakers of these benefits of Christ. So understand that that Chemnitz is saying that Christ is this high priestess mediator who earns this for us. And then the other thing that I want you to see is the way that Chemnitz talks about justification, which is a way that we've kind of forgotten about. But I want to term it in the four A's. Okay, Four A's, very simple, very easy to understand. How a regenerate person is justified before God. Well, there's four A's. Okay? Absolved, accessed, adopted, accepted. Four A's. And so what Chemnitz will talk about is the person and work of Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, but is also the high priest and the mediator. And it is Christ who first absolves of sin. That's the first day. And that now gains us, action, gains us access to a gracious heavenly Father, which, of course, means that we have been adopted sons of God by grace. Which, of course, means we are accepted into eternal life. Now, this is the language of kindness, and I think this is most beneficial that we would once again go back to this understanding and the way of talking about justification. So that there would be no confusion. So that we would not fall into trying to fight against self-righteousness or self-justification, but instead teach justification as it has been given us to teach.